Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Welcome to another episode of Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. I'm joined again by Danny and Damalola and this morning we each woke up to a really major news story that we're going to be talking about, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Again, I think it's worth saying we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. This is going to be a moving news story, but it does seem like it's the dominant story of the week. So we're going to spend most of our time uh, talking about that. It's a a serious story. It's a heavy story. This has very real life implications. And for everybody globally, uh, we find ourselves fundamentally at war. And so we're going to reflect on that and how we do that. And as we do that, uh, we put out a poll and we did ask you questions around the sanctions. Was Russia going to invade regardless? Almost everybody said yes, but we are going to reflect on Britain's uh, reaction and interaction around this. And look, as a podcast, we're finding our way. Uh, we really appreciate the feedback you're giving us. Please do get in touch at the email cross.section at eauk.org. Tell us what we should be discussing, but also how to be doing that. So we've had some feedback. We want to just re-emphasize we're coming at this as three Christians, really trying to wrestle with taking our faith seriously and engaging in the news stories. What does it mean for each of us? So for me this morning, that was about how do you go to your quiet time and how do I spend time with God before I grab my phone to see what's happening in Ukraine? And that is a real tension in life. I, I love my news. Sometimes you want to grab it and see what's happening. It felt last night we were on the cusp of something. How do we allow uh, our faith to shape our reading of the news and not our news to shape how we're viewing our faith in that day? And so that's a real tension. And some of the things we'll talk about is how we engage news and how we do that, each of us, where we get our news from and how we process that. So I'm going to turn to you guys just as we kick off. Uh, Danny, probably you first, just about like, just set this story in some context. We all know what's happened. Russia's invaded Ukraine, but give us a bit of background from your perspective around this. So this feels like a story that has been a couple of months in the making and then a, a couple of days reaching this particular point. Since since December, there has been growing uncertainty, uh, Russian troops mounting on the Ukrainian border, concern over what would happen next. And then in the last few weeks, it reached uh, further levels. And then uh, this week, uh, we saw the successive developments of Vladimir Putin recognizing the two uh, states in eastern Ukraine of Donetsk and Luhansk as uh, independent countries, and then saying that he would send uh, Russian forces to as peacekeeping forces into these regions and then the question was what happened next and then overnight last night uh, there were a, a full-scale russian attack on ukraine has started both uh, in air and on land um, quite what russia's goals in this attack are is not clear uh, are they trying to just take this territory in the east are they trying to have wholesale regime change I think one of the questions I'm wrestling with and I've heard people wrestle with uh, today is how do we where do we place this on the scale of how big is this? Is this the biggest geopolitical thing to happen since 9-11 or is it the biggest thing that's happened since the end of the Second World War? This is war on continental Europe. What does this mean? And I think that's what I was saying in the intro, isn't it? It's this fundamental question about are we at war and how do we understand that in terms of the kind of clashing stories and what's going on and how we're even hearing about it through the media. So 
how do how do we reflect a little bit more on that, Damla? How are you processing this story and and even getting information around it and what to do with that? Yeah, I mean, it's surreal to have woken up today to war in Europe, even with all the news stories leading up to it in the past few weeks. And I guess for myself, as I've sought to make sense of the emerging story, the question has been, how can I and those around me have such a uniform view of this conflict while there are so many others um, who see this differently? And um, so to ground that a bit, um, yesterday CNN published a survey um, in which they found that twice as many Russians believe it would be right for Moscow to use military force to prevent Kiev from joining NATO um, as say it would be wrong. One out of every two Russians says it would be right while only a quarter say it would be wrong and the other 25% are unsure. And that's contrasted with basically everyone in my life being unanimous that this is crazy, that Russia's wrong, and this shouldn't be happening. And I certainly like that has immediate resonance with me. But the deeper question is, what is this of us just living in different bubbles of information that are mutually exclusive? And I'm reminded of John Mark Comer, famous Christian man, um, and his book around live, living no lies, um, and his big idea, um, um, is about spiritual warfare being manifested in the ideological realm first and foremost that the things that we believe and the lies that we believe and can alter our reality and can distort our relationship with God and with other people and I think this is an example this situation has been an example of ideological warfare long before it became physical combat and it will be fascinating to see how spinning different ideas continue to have a shaping role in what emerges. So you say ideological warfare. Uh, unpack that, because that, that can sound a bit jargony. What, what do you mean? Yeah, I guess. What ideologies are at play here? Yeah, it's fa fascinating. I think one of them is the idea of the West being right and East being wrong and that the West has like a monopoly on progress and human rights and that Putin is coming to distort and destroy all of that. I think there's certainly some truth in that but on the flip side it seems that Russians are being fed a very different picture and that the West is seeking to encroach on their rights, is seeking to destabilize the identity of Ukrainians and not recognize that they have a common heritage with the East. And so they're really going to shape understandings of of reality and how to navigate reality, what a flourishing life looks like, um, and posing the other side as the key contentious force that is coming against flourishing for whatever community. Do you have any thoughts on that, Danny? <laughs> well, I, I, I've just been reflecting quite a lot on how we've, how we've got to this place and the was it and like we asked this poll was it inevitable um there there's this really strange thing that happens on both the right and the left of certainly british opinion where you have nigel farage and jeremy corbyn are among the few people that seem to be taking a more pro-russian stance on this and this picks up your point of the bubbles so it seems like common sense in some ways to say russia are wrong and i think russia are wrong to be doing that but actually there are other people that don't um, and then you start getting into these questions of, well, geopolitics. Geopolitics fascinates me. I think it's really helpful for us to uh, look at the breadth of this issue. So not just the short-term thing that's happening uh, this week, but where has this come from? What happened in 2014 where Russia annexed Crimea? What happened in 
1994 when the Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons in the Budapest Agreement and Russia, the US and the UK uh, committed to an independent sovereign Ukraine. All of these things. And then you hear Putin this week talking about the Russian and the Ukrainian people being one. I think as Christians, it's really helpful for us to view the long picture, to see what's going on in these relationships and, and, and in this, this, this big geopolitical picture, because otherwise we can see the, the spikes of the news headlines and think this is, uh, this is the thing that captures our attention, but we miss the bigger story and the bigger picture. Yeah, I think I, I totally agree with that, because I think what we see is a rising nationalism. So we see in this case a Russian nationalism that wants to bring the country together is what Putin says, but we've seen a rising nationalism in India, we've seen it in China, we've seen it in the US in the elections, we've seen elements of it here in the UK, so we've got to be alert to that trend. But I think also I've read others, I've commented, that Putin is not an, an ideologue in many ways, and he is an agent of chaos. He has consistently found ways to destabilize the West. Sometimes say, well, look, why, why do we as Christians care about this story? Well, I think fundamentally you read in Genesis about the chaos, uh, the watery chaos, and God comes and calls forth order. And Putin is an agent of chaos. He destabilizes on purpose. He did it in Syria, he's done it in Crimea, he's now doing it in Ukraine. Before he even invaded, he had people wondering what was happening. Uh, it's alleged that they spent only a few million pounds, a few million dollars uh, on the ads around the US elections in 2016 and 2020, but it did enough to get everybody thinking, did the Russians change it? Did they do enough? Did they influence it? Nobody's quite sure. And that's all he needed was just enough to destabilize and undermine democracy. And that is one of the things Putin loves. He's got this guy, the Greg Cardinal, who came from an advertising and propaganda background. I love him. Danny's smiling. I'd like to talk about this guy. But that is his force is to get people unsure what's going on. We like when it's A against B, it's good against bad. When it came to Syria, when it comes to Ukraine, sometimes we're like, we're a bit confused. It's not that clear. Who's the goodies? Who's the baddies? Who are we supposed to support? And what he does is get everybody fighting with each other. And in the midst of the chaos, I believe, Putin doesn't care in one sense. He loves chaos because that gives him the opportunity to thrive and to push his agenda. So for me, one of the reasons as Christians I care about this story is I think it's, it's fundamentally promoting chaos and is against the order that we're supposed to bring to the world. It's bringing war and instability when we're supposed to bring peace and build reconciliation and relationships. So that's one of the reasons I get interested in this story. Even though I don't understand everything about it, I can see some of those trends at play and I'm beginning to think, okay, what's going on here, God? How do we view this story and pray well into it? So if one of you guys has come in, I've got one other angle on this story I want to pursue, and then I'm going to circle back to you, Danny, in a moment around this. I find a really interesting piece uh, by uh, Jazz Fraser around even the uh, religious undertones of this. You've got the Orthodox Church, um, you've got Russian Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. So the Ukrainian and the Russian Orthodox Church have fallen out with each other. Uh, the Russians have kind of ostracized them and pushed them away. Uh, and below this, there are some religious undertones to the story. So fascinating piece by Giles Fraser, just trying to explore that. Uh, Putin's own religious background, how he sees this as a kind of spiritual thing. Again, that's linked to his nationalism. We've seen that in other countries. We see it in India, we see it in the US possibly even in Britain, where people are saying the national thing to do is about how your religion affects that whole identity. So again, you see those undertones that are really problematic. And our friends and colleagues across the world and evangelical alliances have been speaking into this as well and offering their insights. Yes, well, in fact, you just mentioned the evangelical alliances. Let me uh, read to you from 
uh, a letter that was sent from the head of the Russian Evangelical Alliance uh, yesterday uh, to Vladimir Putin. Now, uh, the context for this is that uh, the Ukrainian Council of Churches had joined with other faith leaders, Jewish leaders uh, and other faiths to call for peace. Um, but the head of the Russian Evangelical Alliance called on Vladimir Putin to uh, support peace. As evangelical Christians, we all pray daily. So I think this, this message of peace is interesting, actually, to see like, there are complexities around the religious nationalism of the Ukraine and Russia, around evangelicals, around the Orthodox Church. It is not straightforward. There are, there's quite a lot sometimes of some of the, the, the weaponizing, actually, of religious beliefs and uh, loyalties. Um, but what we need is, is fascinating where you see this coming together of people calling for peace. And amongst those who've been calling for peace has been pastors. So Christianity Today have um, an article um, that looks at a range of different sermons that were preached in Ukraine this past Sunday. And it's extraordinary to see the people of God pastors needing to shepherd a flock right in the midst of it. Um, and being able to say to them, God isn't likely to parachute us out of this situation. Um, but in the midst of this, we can get to know the reality, the truth of Emmanuel. As we open up our spaces to be refuges and shelters, places that were places of worship, now also serving this function of being able to harbour and give refuge to the local community. And I think, yeah, it's worth in the midst of the geopolitical angles and the ideological warfare angles to remember that there are real people made in the image of God who are needing to navigate life in a very different way on the back of this conflict. And um, that what is happening in these boardrooms and in high political official complexes um, is, is translating to mothers needing to um, put their children's blood types on the back of their um, school bags as they go to school so that if they get shelled um, and they need a blood transfusion that the right information will be there. That is extraordinary and so yes I think there's the moment for us to seek God's um, intervention in the big picture and recognize how this is drastically affecting um, people's lives and their day-to-day -day lives and to remember the people of God are at the forefront of it and there are pastors who are refusing to leave the front line so that they can shepherd the flock and what does it look like for you and I in our relative security and comfort to stand with them in the midst of that I think there's an invitation for us to learn what it is to be the family of God in a new way even in the midst of this ideological and nationalistic clash and, and one of the ways that this will affect us and this is perhaps not the way it, we should first think about it but actually we will see a refugee crisis in Europe as a result of this war. There will be refugees, there are already refugees pouring from the Ukraine into Poland. Uh, you will see that coming across Europe and now we should care about the human cost in the Ukraine and on the, the Russian border but actually the point at which to be honest many people may first see it is in this in a refugee crisis spreading across Europe. And then the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond with compassion? Uh, the rhetoric around refugees and around our borders and around immigration systems is often so hostile that it forgets about the, the humanity at the heart of this. And actually, we should care when they're refugees, but we also need to care whether they're uh, in the country or leaving the country. Yeah, so it's been really fascinating, I think, to read in the British press a lot of the stuff is about, well, what's the cost and implications? And it's all about us, cost of living increase, gas prices, fuel prices, and that's true. 
then as you said Danny actually then well they've hinted at sorry at the cyber security attacks and the implications on us and our infrastructure then we've said about the refugees and that's another destabilizing influence we saw a little bit of that in Belarus we're going to see massive in Ukraine the human cost of that is huge and then we see the civilian cost in Ukraine uh, you see pictures already coming out in terms of loss of life and what's happening in that and in the midst of that, maybe some of you have seen on social media, the pictures of, of Christians praying in the square. I was reading something from the Deputy Secretary General of the Bible Society. They printed their Bibles for 2022 and they're all gone already. They've given them all away. They have never seen people as interested in this moment. It's one of the things that happens, obviously, when you're, you're in threat in the same way as the church is actually being turned to in a massive way. So we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine as they try and navigate this moment. And that is something we're going to come back to because we don't say that lightly, hey, all we can do is pray. We're absolutely committed to that, that God is on the move in this moment. We need to be praying for what's happening. And we're going to return and do that as we come to the end of this podcast because we don't just want to talk about it. We want to do it. And that might feel a bit weird, but you know what? That's what we do. We pray into these situations. So that was the big story that we wanted to talk about. We're so thankful that you've joined us in doing this. Again, we're, we're constantly just trying to work out how to navigate that. We, uh, you can follow us on social media. You can email us on cross.section at eauk.org. Uh, I've said it before, but you'll find Danny Webster and myself on social media. You will not find Damalola because he is above these matters. Yeah. Uh, but you can interact with us there. You can uh, dialogue with us a little bit uh, and do let us know what you think of this. Rate, review the podcast. Do share it if you're finding it useful. The, we're going to turn to a different story, and then, as I say, we will come back and pray into what's happening right now in Ukraine. But the second story is about the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission, Danny. It's a kind of longer tale story that's been maybe sitting a little under the radar. I said Danny, but actually I'm going to Damalola, I think, to tell me about this story. So uh, it's, it's the engagement in Scotland. What particular aspect are we looking at? And this is something that we've had a bit more engagement in. So give us a bit more of the story. So the Europe, um, Equality and Human Rights Commission responded to or intervened, made comments on the Scottish process at the moment, considering reforming their Gender Recognition Act and enabling self-ID. So for those not familiar with that lingo, um, self-ID basically um, says that trans people and people who report not feeling con a feeling of dis-ease or a lack of consonance with their biologically assigned sex should be able to um, identify for themselves what they prefer to go by. I want to either say that I'm transgender or I'm non-binary or I'm one of a number of other identities, they should be allowed to live that way and have that respected by those around them. And that has been a long running debate in Scotland, but it seems to be leaning towards a sign of reforming the act and enabling self-ID. And the UK Human Rights Commission uh, have said, well, they're not yet, yeah, the UK Equality and Human Rights Commission have intervened to say they don't believe that they believe that Scotland should basically press pause on their plans um, and better consider the com competing rights in play here. So with that, the EHRC do believe that trans rights should be protected, but they also say there's a tension here when it comes to women's rights. And we need to think about this really delicately in law, how best to balance these rights. And that has received quite quite the response, both from trans lobbyists and members of the public in general. Mem people have said that the EHRC is not fit for purpose and it is like, transphobic at core. And so the EHRC have said, no, we're trying to, we're trying to balance competing rights here. Um, 
and yeah it leads to many different things for us to consider as christians i can see uncle peter is chomping at the bit come in come on in sir what do you have to say well no no so okay so we're we're pretty clear then so the ehrc and the scottish government's going way too far on this issue uh, the other piece of context i'd love to give is just that we've got a transformed resource as evangelical alliance if you go onto our website you'll find that we set out a biblical framework we set out a pastoral response to this so we're aware there's a lot of layers and complexities to this story but the bit we want to just tease out a little bit more now is again the kind of story clash where the former uh, head of the ehrc was a former chair of stonewall at that point everybody was happy and everybody was on the same page He's moved on, new chair. They've suddenly taken a much stronger view around women's rights. And all of a sudden, Stonewall are trying to say, let's get rid of, the, not get rid of the HRC, but let's complain to the UN, get them demoted in terms of their human rights status. And this is fascinating as the kind of cultural context changes around a little bit. So, Danny, I know you've been reflecting a well, bit more on this. I, I'd say that Stonewall are throwing their toys out the pram, to put it in colloquial phrases. Um, Stonewall largely got their way with the EHRC previously. Uh, what they wanted was the agenda of the EHRC. What the EHRC are now saying is that actually things are more complex. Uh, if you look at the European Convention of Human Rights, which is incorporated into UK law through the Human Rights Act, the rights have to work with each other. Um, it's, it's not just that everyone gets absolute freedom to everything they want, whether it's the right to family life or the right to expression, the right to assembly or right to religion and belief, they work in tension. Um, and what the Equality and Human Rights are say, Commission are saying is we need to work this bit out. We need to work out how they work and we need to take some time. Let's not rush. But Stonewall and others are not happy about this. So they're calling for uh, the, your, the Equality and Human Rights Commission to be downgraded in its status. This week we've seen a bit of a war of words kicking off between the Scottish Human Rights Commission and the Equality and Human Rights Commission and who has jurisdiction and responsibility in Scotland to say what. Um, it's getting messy. Yeah, and, and so some of the background is, I mean, Northern Ireland journalist called Stephen Nolan did a fascinating podcast on Stonewall, about 10 episodes worth looking at through the BBC, right up to the Director General of the BBC commenting, it got picked up by other BBC news outlets. And again, it was basically saying Stonewall had undue influence in governments, undue influence in some of the quangos, and really pushing back on that. And it was like a big expose of the level of their yeah, influence over these things. And there's definitely been a pushback around that. And we're finding again, this story clash really fascinating as to how that unfolds. Yes, and how I think part of how we should consider it unfolding is across two prongs. So the first is to seek to understand um, the experience of trans people. It's quite, um, most of us probably don't relate with trans people, might not have people in our social circles who are trans. And I think that is changing as more and more people come out and identify using this language. And so I think there is a task of getting to know people and hearing what their experiences are and journeying with them. A number of trans people um, and especially young Young people growing up and um, identifying as trans that comes from a place of deep distress for them and struggling with societal norms and there's a work of compassion and walking alongside that is needed there but as as believers in Jesus our compassion is always informed by the truth of what scripture teaches um, and so we helpfully have something to hold on to even as we navigate these like shifting cultural currents and that is the good truth the good news
news um, that we have been created, that we don't just come to the world and need to work out how to self-identify or to generate an identity. That when we, as, as being creatures made in the image of God, we've been given an identity. And as we come to trust in Jesus and we further live into the identity of what it is to be adopted. But yes, how have we been created? The scriptures teach that we've been created male and female and that we can have different experiences of that. Sometimes that might strike us better, sometimes more burdensome, but um, at, the, at its core, that is a good thing and it's something for us to grow into appreciating. And so we want to hold on to that knowledge. We want to prize and rejoice in the fact that God has made us in this way and that is meaningful. But we also do want to come alongside those who struggle with that and lead them towards a truth um, that we think is found in scripture and is found in God's way. One of the most interesting people engaged in this debate is J.K. Rowling in all sorts of angles. She's Scottish. Um, she wrote under JK because she wasn't sure if being seen as a female author would impact her. And uh, the New York Times had an ad that got the news coverage over the weekend. Something along the lines of, I've got to remind myself of the wording of that ad, but basically imagining, so it had a picture of a lady uh, who I think described herself as non-binary and said, imagining Harry Potter without its creator. And in one sense, that seems like somewhat neutral. And then you begin to think, what do you mean without its creator? Like, as in, no J.K. Rowling, she didn't exist. Have you just eradicated, eliminated a female author in this moment? What, what's going on that the New York Times thinks it can run that ad? And J.K. Rowling's been a really fascinating advocate in this space, saying I, she, she's very clear she's in favor of trans rights, but she's also in favor of women's rights. And there has to be space to have this conversation. And we're seeing, again, this story clash here between the lesbian and the trans community at times the feminist community and the trans community those who are interested in science versus feelings at all sorts of levels we're having this conversation and so a real challenge and and i think what we what we see here is well i i'm reminded of it's a, a phrase that the social commentator os guinness used that we like uh we live in a cut flower culture we like fruit without the roots uh Actually, the very human rights we're talking about, much of their foundation depends on Christian teaching. And people want the fruits of Christianity without acknowledging where it's come from, where, it, where its origin lies. Yeah, I think it's so funny. Yeah, it was the New York Times, the image was Liana is imagining um, Harry Potter without its creator. And that's like shocking for what it means for JK Rowling and erasing her identity as a female author but also yeah I think that points to the temptation at the heart of the trans debate and some of the contemporary issues we're looking at in what ways are we as a modern western society seeking to imagine life in this world without God its creator and that's true for the society I live in but as a Christian I'm, I need to think through in what ways is this true for me? Is this becoming true for me? In what ways might I be absorbing by osmosis, as it were, some ideological strains that fundamentally are opposed to the truth of who God is and the goodness of his creation? I guess we want to um, affirm that God is good, his work is good, and we want to live into his good creation. Well, this is the ultimate act that we all tempted to do, isn't it? Imagining a world without its creator, that we are God, we replace uh, God with ourselves 
And that was the fascinating kind of subtext, I suppose, to that little advert and what's going on. We all try to imagine a world without a creator. And as Danny said, without the Judeo-Christian story, without the biblical values, you don't get to a story of human rights. You don't get to that point. Jonathan uh, Sumption, the former uh, Supreme Court judge, made that point in his wreath lectures. Tom Holland has made that point in his book, uh, Dominion. We see it again and again and again. And so the irony is the whole conversation that we're having around these various rights is fundamentally rooted in the Christian story. And we as Christians need to get better at being on the front foot about that, saying it's because everybody's a divine image bearer that everybody is equal and everybody has a set of rights that follow from that. And that's a really exciting, I think, and, and fruitful place for us to be engaging in the public conversation. That's what drives us in many of the uh, ways in which we think about the news stories. But it's also what gives us this deep passion for what's going on in Ukraine in this moment. And we said we'd return to that. We said we'd finish as we pray around that topic. So my colleague and friend, David Smith, has written a prayer that's on our Evangelical Alliance website. Uh, I'm going to read just a couple of sections from that as we close up, because we don't want to just say we're praying. We want to model what it is to pray into the public square as we read and review the news. It's not something we say. We like literally read news stories and go, God, my heart cries out in this moment. So please join me wherever you are on the podcast as you're listening to this. And I'm going to pray this to close us. Father, today we pray for the escalating situation on the borders of Ukraine and Russia. We confess that in times of such rapid change and on issues of such complexity, it can be difficult to know how to pray. So we praise you. We reorientate ourselves to you. We remind ourselves of your love. And we struggle to see clearly sometimes through the confusion and misinformation, but we recognize the age-old lust for power and control and violence. But we also recognize that you're in control and we pray for those who are fleeing and who are fearful and who are vulnerable. We pray for the peacekeepers and the peacemakers, those on the ground and those trying to come to political solutions. And we remember how Jesus resisted being co-opted into the religious and political uprisings of competing empires. You remember how Jesus spoke to heal the sick, calm the storm and raise the dead. And we pray for powerful words and miraculous actions, for de-escalation, for peace, for justice, repentance and restoration. We remember our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and we say, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Bless you. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again next week. Cross-section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.